The Old Pilot's Plain Tales RF Form 414, Volume 14 It's logbook time again, and you may recall that I was as freshly a minted A1 QFI as there could be, and I had just left the training world to return to the front line on my old squadron, the Fighting Cox. I had been in Wales for over four years, and in that time the faces I knew on 43 Squadron had almost all gone, and I was joining a unit of strangers. Not to say that I didn't feel welcome, it was just a bit weird. My occasional visits during major exercises had been enough to keep me current on the Phantom, so I didn't need to do a refresher course at the Operational Conversion Unit, but the squadron had cobbled together a few trips to tick enough boxes just to cover their asses or donkeys. I can never tell the difference. A month after arriving, I was back in the queue shed. It took a couple of weeks before the Soviet Air Force found out and they immediately rushed around the northern approaches en masse to say hello. After we had launched both the Q1 and Q2 Phantoms, the squadron were told to get Q3 airborne as soon as possible. Unlike Q1 and 2 which were on 10 minutes readiness, the Q3 aircraft needed to be generated and airborne within one hour. It was quite possible to arm and fit tanks to an aircraft within that time, but as a precaution, a fully armed Q3 aircraft sat just beside the sheds, just in case. With Steve, we were nominally the Q3 crew, I threw my kit on, jumped in, and off we went. Joining up with a tanker, we headed north, hunting bear. Before long, we'd sidled up beside a pair of Bear Deltas with their big maritime surveillance radar in a blister on the belly. They'd been at medium level, around 20,000 feet, and we watched them droning around for a while until Steve spotted something on the radar down low. The contacts he found were barely breaking out of MBC, main beam clutter, on the pulse Doppler display, which put us close to their beam. The antenna angle wasn't big, so they were probably 30 or 40 miles away, but we had enough photos of our current bears, so we gave chase. MBC was that part of the radar return that contains reflections from the sea or the earth below. It was electronically notched out, but if our targets moved on to a 90-degree intercept, they would be hidden in that notch and would disappear. We needed to get out in front of them, into their forward quarter, so that we could approach from an angle near head-on, say a 120 or 150-degree intercept. This needed a little judicious use of burner, but we were in a delta fit, the precise code was Delta 440, that is Delta for three tanks, 440 for four sidewinders, four sky flash and no gun, since the centerline tank was taking up that station. I could take the wing tanks up to 550 knots and Mach 1.6 full, or 750 knots and Mach 1.6 empty, but the centerline limit was 600 knots and 1.8, so I was currently limited to around 550 knots, but that was enough for the job. We hooked around the front of the targets and descended down over the North Sea. 
Steve was doing a great job with the intercept, and soon I was wheeling in behind a pair of Mod C badgers, scooting along at a hundred feet or so over the ways. Well, well, we thought. While the bears were upstairs keeping us occupied, these guys were downstairs trying to get past us. We made ourselves known to them, and then popped up to find the tanker who'd been trailing along behind. We knew he wasn't too far away, since we were making use of the air-to-air function built into our TACAN navkeer. Very much like a VOR DME, the TACAN was a military equivalent, but we could use the distance measuring side of it to give us a range to another aircraft if we both used the same mode and frequency. During the next week or so, we were involved with a joint maritime exercise, which was probably why there was so much Soviet activity. But they were long missions. In only four flights, I was airborne for 14 hours 20 minutes. Still, good times were just ahead. We were off to Detchi. For those of you who know what a Catch-22 situation is, I applaud you, for at least you've watched the movie, if not read the book. I mention this because many of the events that inspired the book happened at the Deci Mamano Air Base in 1944. It's situated on the island of Sardinia, to the southwest of the leg of Italy, about halfway down. During World War II, it served first the Italia Norregia Aeronautica and then the United States Army 12th Air Force 320th Bombardment Group flying B-26 Marauders. In the 50s, the Royal Canadian Air Force used it as a weapons training installation and then in the 60s it became a NATO ACMI range. For those of you who listen to the tales about Red Flag, you won't need any introduction to the air combat manoeuvring instrumentation ranges, but here's a quick explanation anyway. Air combat is a complex series of hard manoeuvring in three dimensions and difficult to keep track of. The debrief was often won by the most senior or loud-mouthed pilot shouting down the rest. ACMI took all the guesswork out of it. Each participating aircraft carries a pod, it looks a bit like a wingless missile, which transmits aircraft data, height, speed, altitude, G, angle of attack, weapon system information, etc., to a series of receivers that surround the range. The data is processed by very powerful computers, which provide a real-time, three-dimensional view of the range and all the players fighting within it. Missile shots are simulated and take into account the defensive manoeuvres to judge the probability of kill. In 1985, when I first participated, I felt it was like watching myself in a Star Wars movie. Quite magic. This was going to be my first Detchi, and I was eager to play, but first we had to get down there. I was given the lead of a four-ship of our Phantoms to take down, and we had a tanker RV to top up our tanks just north of France, but once that was achieved, we'd be on our own. The navigation wasn't hard, but our sister squadron, Tremblers, had managed to get lost, giving rise to the famous song we now sang to them. I was lost in France, 
It only took two hours 45 minutes before we ran into the airbase to break into the circuit over the mass of parked fighters below. Detchi was a busy place, with many air forces present to participate in dissimilar air combat. It was one of the busiest airfields in Europe, with, at that time, an average of 60,000 movements a year, about 450 per day, and was something of a spotter's paradise. June in Sardinia was beautiful, and it was a delight to shed our heavy immersion suits and wear lightweight flying suits for a couple of weeks instead. We mixed with our counterparts in the Italian Air Force, the Canadians, Luftwaffe, and the Mad Dutch, to name just a few, but mainly the United States Air Force. The Italians ran the place in their own idiosyncratic way, which led to much frustration from our betters and hilarity from ourselves. Classically, we all met in the mornings for a daily briefing on the day's missions. This would often be curtailed by a senior Italian officer bearing much gold on his uniform, declaring in an imperious voice, The Ranger, she are closed. The closing of the range was a continual threat to our plans to fly, and was most often due to the unserviceability of the single, aged search-and-rescue boat. Since the ACMI range was over water, this venerable launch was required to rescue anyone unfortunate enough to eject, and without the boat, nobody flew. There were a few other peculiarities that always raised a smile. You'd never get takeoff clearance until everyone in the formation had confirmed to the tower that their canopy was down and locked. Apparently, someone with a bad hangover had taxied out one day and tried to depart without finishing their pre-takeoff checks and left their aircraft's lid decorating the runway whilst they flew around in a convertible for a few circuits. Other delightful memories come from the ground attack boys, who were often asked to sweep through their ranges to ensure they were clear of uncaring holidaymakers in boats, with the call, A check no sheeps in a bay. They would duly look around for swimming ewes. For the fighter boys, it was important when bugging out of a fight not to drop a boom over the island, and we all dreaded the call from Murto Radar. You break out the supersonic line. At the end of a hot and sweaty day playing at fighter pilots, we would retire to the pig and tape, a bar built into the accommodation blocks by enterprising Brits and decorated by generations of pilots who had time on their hands, having suffered yet another day when uh, the ranger, she are closed. The walls were beautifully painted with squadron crests and cartoons whilst various memorabilia had found its way there. We shared the patio with a thousand-pound bomb that was embedded into the paving and a sidewinder sticking through one wall. If we went off base for a meal, it was usually down to Cagliari for a calzona pizza with lots of decci red, the local rough wine served from polythene half-gallon containers. 
Returning to the airbase, we would be faced with a couple of 16-year-old conscripts with big guns, cigarettes and an open bottle of wine demanding for our pesa pasa. If we managed to regain entry, it would be down to the tri-service mess for gelato and zambuca desserts, followed by more zambuca, generally flaming and espresso. The flying was the best bit, though. Assuming the launch hadn't sunk again, we would head out to the big circular range with clean wings, no tanks to hinder us, and use up a year's worth of airframe fatigue in two weeks. My logbook shows a few 1v1s to clear away the cobwebs, and then 2v2 and 2v2v2 against F-16s. 2v2 against Eagles, then 2v2v2 Eagles and F-16s. There was some Harrier and Hawk combat thrown in, and some 4v4, F-4 and Hawk versus F-15 and F-16. Anyone who got shot, indicated by a coffin appearing around the ACMI aircraft symbol, had to do an aileron roll and then head to the edge of the range to regenerate before re-entering the fight. All good fun. All too soon, the tanks were back on and we were headed back to Lucas and QRA. Within a few days, I had a couple more bad deltas and then a bear and a badger to my name. Then it was something a bit different, with us fighting and then tanking off a Hercules before heading back down to RAF Valley. This time it was a bit different, arriving in a mighty phantom and parking away from the lines of red and white hawks on the pan outside the Strike Command air-to-air missile establishment. Pooping off real missiles was a regular bit of our training, and having been away from the front line for a few years, I got a chance to fire one. Although attempts were made to create some realism, launching an air-to-air missile had to be done in a boringly choreographed manner, lest some unfortunate passing airliner be the recipient of one of the RAF's most fun toys. The range filled the bite-shaped chunk missing from the west coast of Welsh Wales, named after the Welshman's national costume, Cardigan Bay. From an airfield near Harlech, where, according to the song, the men of Wales come from... and the more different naturist beach, where they presumably go to, the RAF would launch an Australian target drone. The Jindavik, an Aboriginal word meaning the hunted one, was powered by a Rolls-Royce Viper, which was also the engine that helped the jet provost, the ab initio trainer of the time, to limp along, and it was our target of choice. Once airborne out of Lambeda, the drone flew into the range and deployed a target flare on a long wire. We were vectored onto it, whereupon the flare was lit, and the jindy flew a lazy orbit. We drove around until we got in behind at a mile and made the call. Firing, firing, now. We were supposed to leave gaps in our transmissions to let the range controller stop us, if something odd happened, like a Boeing 737 full of holidaymakers going from Liverpool to Torre Molinos to drink Watney's Red Barrel, happened on the scene. 
The trick was to do this before the flare burnt out, which would result in the missile seeking the next available heat source, the aforementioned Rolls-Royce Viper in the Jindavik. After nearly transmitting on the trigger and spoiling everything, I managed to get my left thumb and right index finger coordinated enough to make the call and fire the sidewinder. Luckily, we were still at the right range, and after a big smoky whoosh, the winder leapt across the short distance and went bang. We stuck around for a few more days, pooping off more ordnance, whilst I helped as a photo chase and a secondary firer, and that was that. Back home, and I was crewed up with a new navigator, Cool Hand Collie. I'll explain his nickname another time, as he was yet to demonstrate his culinary capacity, but we flew together often. One such time was as we worked up for the RAF Lucas Battle of Britain flypast. The boss had volunteered us to fly a four-ship formation display on the occasion of that year's Battle of Britain celebrations. We wheeled around the sky overhead Lucas doing our thing on a number of occasions, changing formation positions, there are only a limited number of things you can do with the four-ship, and more importantly, making lots of noise. Being in the flypast was the ideal place for me. Coolhand wasn't so sure, as he was convinced I was trying to take a wingtip off. Uh, because it excused me from other duties that I might otherwise be given. On an RAF base, the Battle of Britain is a special day, during which it celebrates its most important victory in battle, and welcomes local dignitaries to enjoy it with them. Lords and ladies, mayors and mayoresses, the well-heeled and influential, politicians and notables, luminaries and public figures, pillars of society and personalities, big kahunas and large enchiladas are all invited to a cocktail party, at the end of which there is a fly-past. What looks to most like a pleasant gathering is in fact an event coordinated with exquisite precision. Junior officers are briefed and prepared so that, as a couple arrive, they discreetly have their invitation checked and are passed on to an usher who is given their names. The usher takes their coats and brings them forward to a hosting officer who already has their details, including a short background brief, and whose job it is to keep them well supplied with champagne cocktails whilst manoeuvring them around a large anteroom. In the room are all the other local hoity-toity and the station's senior officers and other halves. They are positioned in several circles and the hosting officer is supposed to bring them to a group, introduce them to all there and feed them drinks for let's say 15 minutes. Then they discreetly move them on to the next group so that for the two hours they're there, they are moved on through every circle and get to meet all the RAF bigwigs present. All well and good, but some hosts have trouble remembering their own names, let alone other people's. I was, and still am, almost completely name-blind. I had no problem remembering people's jobs, the station commander, OC admin wing, OC engineering wing, but their names? The harder I tried, the more flustered I would become, and the less likely to recall anything. I was, and still am, so inept that I married my lovely wife, Thingamajig, 
specifically so that when we arrived at someone's door for a dinner party, she could remind me of our host's names. And apart from that, I preferred flying. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you're enjoying Plane Tales, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.